Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, I smell a rat. Pacifica host Garland Nixon dives into Hollywood from a Black perspective during this award season. Hello, Garland Nixon here, and we're going to talk about uh, something interesting, this whole so-called diversity thing going on in Hollywood. Let's talk. You know, I don't know. You know, I mean, there's wars going on. There's all kinds of craziness happening. But I feel like this is something that's kind of stuck in my craw a little bit. And so I feel like I I, I don't know what I'm going to say, but I'm just going to start. I'm just going to talk about it. And that's so what's going on. What is it? And it's obvious, right? Every movie that comes out now, every movie, there's some Spider-Man movie coming out with all field female spider people i guess um you got pretty much every um you know most of the uh, superhero movies right they'll like go into some alternative universe and they'll all come back as a diverse group of women um you've got every you know advertisement right and this is interesting you know and i'll see you know me i don't care what i say i look at the advertisement right and i'll be watching advertisement after advertisement and here's the first thing i notice i'm like okay let me see what's going on tv and i'm like that's weird there ain't no white people in the advertisements anymore man i'm old i remember there used to be white people in advertisements ain't no white people in advertisements anymore right and i look and it's like here's an advertisement and it's always a diverse group of whatever you know what i mean then they gotta have the gay person gotta have the latino person the muslim person every advertisement looks like a benetton ad right and i'm looking at it right and i'm thinking to myself i don't know should that bother me i don't know why but for some reason it does for some reason it aggravates me and i'll tell you what this is my you know i'm going to give you my reactions to it it aggravates me in the same way that if you watch a movie from the 1950s or, or a tv show from the 1950s or whatever right it was like all lily white you know it was like a bunch of you know I, I, i've often said you know you watch uh, there's a, a, a famous show called andy griffin and Andy Griffith, you know, was in a town called Mayberry, and they later made Mayberry RFT. And so these were towns in North Carolina. I don't know if anybody's been in North Carolina or the South. A whole lot of black folks, right, in North Carolina and the South. And these uh, TV shows made in the 60s didn't have any black folks. And I thought, how the hell, a town in North Carolina with no black folks? That's kind of weird because you ain't going to find too many towns like that in North Carolina, right? But Hollywood at the time, their job was to portray what the ruling class wanted them to portray, right? And at that time, if we're honest about it, in a class-based society, Black people were viewed as the peasant class. And so they weren't involved, they weren't put into, Hollywood didn't put them in. Hollywood, they weren't in movies, the peasant class people in the same way. Example, if you're here in the States and you ever watch these, the Mexican soap operas that are on some of the uh, Latin channels, right? And here's what you'll notice. The Mexican guy that you see walking down the street, who's kind of short and kind of brown, has that indigenous look to it, right? He's got the darker hair. He's got the indigenous features, right? But when you watch the Mexican soap opera, all the people on there look like they're Spaniards. They don't look like the Mexican indigenous people. They don't look, they look like they're Spaniards, right? And so one of the discussions that we don't have that we need to have, and if you know me, I don't care, discuss everything, is the concept of Hollywood and movies, et cetera, and what they're trying to portray to us. And the understanding that what they're trying to portray to us is in and itself a form of propaganda, right? And so just because a movie goes the way you would like it to go or people look like you or don't look like you or whatever the case, and you're like, yay, they've got people like me again, or oh, there's no people that look like me in the movie, is to miss the point that it's propaganda. And it's to see it through the lens of this is government propaganda. I remember reading, um, I remember a while back, there was one of this show called 24, right? And in 24, and it was something like this kind of superhero spy kind of guy, 
superhero spy, right? Aesthetic propaganda. And uh, something, some Venezuelan person had a nuke or something crazy and they had to, Venezuela, Venezuela um, poses no threat to the United States, right? There was the latest Red Dawn, right? Where the US, you know, was getting invaded by somebody, right? And then the latest version of Red Dawn, I think it was 2013, North Korea invaded like Washington State. North Korea? Really? We're supposed to believe that North Korea wants to come across the ocean all the way to Washington State and invade. North Korea is the size of Pennsylvania. And we're to believe that they're going to launch some kind of a land invade. Pure propaganda, right? And so when you look at Hollywood and you recognize the level of propaganda that you're getting, I remember what was the movie I saw? The latest Jurassic Park. And in the latest Jurassic Park, a group of young and, of course, diverse CIA agents had, like, infiltrated this company that was run by Big Evil Guy, right? And company that was run by Big Evil Guy was doing terrible, evil things to kill lots of people in the world and do evil things. And diverse group of CIA agents, CIA agents were there to save the world and do good. And I'm like, the CIA does, A, it does the opposite of saving the world and do good, and B, if there's some... Uh, a rich and powerful guy who's evil and owns the company, the CIA is probably backing the company, supporting the company, and probably helping the company to do evil and threaten them if they don't do evil. But the bottom line is that gets me down to my first pole position, shall we say, my first node, my first point in this conversation. And that is that when you understand that Hollywood is pushing the message of the ruling elite, pushing the message of the state, pushing the message of the intelligence community, then you understand that there is a paradox here because the paradox is Hollywood is basically pushing an agenda that they're arguing is good and positive. It's diversity. It's everybody's got to be, you know, have an op, blah, 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 have a, have a fair chance, stuff like that. That's allegedly what they're pushing. Not really. On behalf of the intelligence agencies, the military industrial complex. In fact, the Pentagon, here's an article. Now this is, keep in mind something. This is from the U.S. Defense Department. This is from defense.gov, the U.S. Department of Defense, right? Let's look at it. How and why the DOD works with Hollywood. The Department of Defense has a longstanding relationship with Hollywood. Duh! <laughs> In fact, it's been working with filmmakers for nearly 100 years with a goal that's twofold. I love this. Twofold. To accurately depict military stories and make sure sensitive information isn't disclosed, right? Okay, Hollywood's office focuses on the army while each other branch of the armed forces include the Coast Guard has its own Hollywood liaison office, but they coordinate with each other and projects are doled out to various installations to best accommodate filmmakers, right? Okay, how Hollywood became the unofficial propaganda arm of the U.S. military. Second World War launched Hollywood into a propaganda war that continues to this day, right? And on they go. So the bottom line is, let me kill that. So the bottom line is, we'll start off by saying this, in case you didn't know it, in case you think that there's some kind of a fuzzy, amorphous relationship between Hollywood and the Pentagon and that they're trying to hide it, no, they're not trying to hide it. That's what they do. That's who they are. Although they claim they're doing it for good reasons, for accuracy, et cetera. When you look at it, you'll find that Hollywood constantly uh, makes movies that takes the position of the foreign policy, neocon foreign policy establishment. That's what they do. If the U.S. government doesn't like Libya, doesn't like whatever, Nicaragua, you name it, then Hollywood movies, those people are persona non grata as far as being good guys. They can only be bad guys. We get propaganda. Whether it's Red Dawn, you name it, it's always a bunch of propaganda. In fact, the original Red Dawn, which was made in the 80s, where the Russians supposedly um, invaded the United States and they had a bunch of people from Central America and they were like Nicaragua, if I remember correctly, it was Nicaragua, Libyans. It was all the people that the Reagan administration was trying to convince people were their enemies. In the original Red Dawn, they joined in with the Russians and invaded us. 
So bottom line was they're like the Russians attack people with nukes and blah, blah, all the things that they needed to push their propaganda. So today, when I turn on an advertisement and there's the Benetton ad look, right? When I turn on an advertisement and there's a diverse group of females and there's a gay couple and there's the Muslim guy and they're blah, 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 blah. I smell a rat because, you know, you know what I always say, you are what your record says you are. I always smell a rat because the history tells us that's what they do. Right. And when I see Tony Blinken say that, hey, we're going to have um, rainbow flags now with U.S. embassies around the world. Really? There we go. Biden administration grants blanket authorization to pride flags at embassies. U.S. missions overseas can once again fly the pride flag on their official flag with a cable, blah, 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 right? So now you got all of these U.S. embassies flying the pride flag, right? Now, what else do we know about U.S. embassies around the world? Hmm. They're loaded with CIA agents. They're all a fraud. They're not embassies. They're intelligence outposts that they use to overthrow governments, right? So, it's a, a, you know, so the, the good news is, good news for your country, the embassy is going to have a pride flag. Bad news is they're going to try to kill all your people, overthrow your government and steal all your resources, right? It's rainbow flag imperialism. So what I'm saying is this, it's not anti-gay or anti-diversity or anti-then. It's I know when I smell a rat. I know when I'm being had. I know when I'm being took. I know when I'm being lied to. And when I turn on... Um, every advertisement now in the same way that in the 1960s, if you had to turn on Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, things like that, all you would have saw was all white, all lily, lily, lily white people. And you could look at that and say, well, that ain't what America looks like. And that's not even what the world looks like. What the hell is that? You know, you knew, well, that's propaganda. This is the way they want to portray America. And if they brought in like a black person, then he was, you know, how it was. He was dancing around, tap dancing or something. He was Samus Davis Jr. tap dancing or something. That was it, you know, or he was the maid, you know, the maid, the butler, whatever, right? That was propaganda. That was cultural propaganda. And what we're seeing now is cultural propaganda. That's all it is. It is not meant for the betterment of these groups. No, thank you a damn about the betterment of these groups. Because if they were concerned about the betterment of these groups, they wouldn't be starting wars so these groups would all get killed in wars. And coming up next on Arts Express, Ed Begley Jr. talks to the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. The actor revisits among life challenges in his memoir, filling his father's enormous shoes and giving strange meaning to his wild stunt in Son of the Invisible Man. Along with conjuring from his past, quote, winding up in these incredible situations, not sure how the hell I got there, including a treehouse next to a saloon, smoking a joint with Charles Manson, and, quote, summoned to Brando's house to discuss the practical use of electric eels. Here's the conversation with Ed Begley Jr. But first, back in the last century, before the success of shows like Saturday Night Live, weirdly satirical comedy sketches turned up in movies. And one of the most popular was Amazon Women on the Moon, directed by John Landis and featuring the comic interlude Son of the Invisible Man, starring Ed Begley Jr. as well, a guy who believes he's invisible but isn't, cavorting all over the place stark naked. But since this is radio, we don't have to worry showing that. So here goes. Then our interview with Ed Begley Jr., I don't want to be disturbed. Griffin, it's me, Trent. Trent, I've been waiting for you. Come in. Ah, Griffin. 
came as soon as I received your cable. Good God, man. What happened? I've done it, Trent. At long last, I've done it. I finally duplicated my father's formula for invisibility. After five years of injecting myself with every chemical known to man. But, Griffin, the invisibility formula turned your father into a raving lunatic. That's right. Talk to the old man. I've been on the stuff for over a week now, and I'm still perfectly sane. <laughs> yes. I'll rule the world with my secret. Yes. And I'll need you, Ted. I must have a visible partner. <laughs> I can tell by your stunned expression that you're pretty impressed. <laughs> Look, Ma. No hands. <laughs> I haven't come up with a reagent to make myself visible again. But what's the rush? I'm having a ball. Watch me closely. Ever see a shirt? Make a phone call. <laughs> Ooh. Pretty scary, huh? Ooh. Wait till you see this. <laughs> uh, no, Griffin, <laughs> you don't have to go all the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just listen for the sound of my voice. Then you'll know where I am at all times. <laughs> Griffin! Being invisible is the best! <laughs> Dangerous. Come along quietly then, Gov. You'll have to find me first. Oh. <laughs> Come along. Oh, let's cover this one up. Come on. I'm invisible. Don't touch me there. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Very good, and yourself? Okay. Sounds good. Hello, and welcome to our show. Thank you, Prairie. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, why this memoir about your life, and why now? To the Temple of Tranquility, and step on it. You know, it happened in the simplest way. My daughter, then 22, said, Dad, I got my smartphone here in hand. Start talking, buddy. <laughs> Tell me some of these stories. I want to get them down before you forget them about your parents coming over in the, your grandparents coming over in the boat, you know, your parents who were actors and everything that you can remember about the early days of television. Give it to me all before you forget it. So start talking, Dad. Go. Mm. And I started to do that. She recorded it on her phone for like an hour or two. But then she had the life. She got busy. And I went, I got to write down this other story before I forget it. And that's when it happened, Prairie. The computer keyboard became like a Ouija board that actually worked. It started to take me into old attic rooms that I hadn't thought of in forever, open boxes of my memory I hadn't opened in a long time. And I got this stuff down. Some stories I hadn't thought of in 50 years, and I was able to verify them with people who are still alive and able to communicate. So I feel very lucky to had the joyous experience of writing it. What happens after that is none of my business. I just, I loved writing it. I wrote it for my kids and grandkids. But now, apparently, a lot of people are reading it and enjoying it, too. I'm very lucky. And what about smoking a joint with Charles Manson? How did that happen? It, it happened because I was good friends with a man I 
was just with again last night, my dear friend from college, James Jeremiah. He wrote a script called Lost Boys with my other friend, Jan Fisher. But back then, this is 1968, before any of that, we had been in a cinematography class together. And he said, I want to go visit my friend David Curlin. You want to come? So we went and saw his friend David Curlin that lived in a treehouse. He lived in a treehouse next to a saloon. So we visit him. We smoke a joint. But then we're out of pot. So David says, let's go up the hill. There's a family up there that's got some pot. We smoked a joint with people I'd never met before, probably never meet again. But then a year later, we saw these people in the newspaper that were that we had smoked a joint with. It was the Manson family. Mm. The saloon that David lived next door to in the treehouse, that was a part of a movie set. It wasn't a real saloon. It was part of the Spawn Ranch. So we smoked a joint at the Spawn Ranch one year before those horrible murders. And uh, it was, you know, I felt like, Zelig or something, or you know, Forrest Gump or Chauncey Gardner, I'd wind up in these incredible situations, not sure how the hell I got there. Mm-hmm. And what lured you into Better Call Saul? Oh, that was easy. You know, Vince <laughs> Gilligan, I'm such a fan of Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould. When I heard they were doing that show, you know, I auditioned for the part, and they were very wise to cast somebody twice as talented as me, perhaps, perhaps more than that. Michael McKean to play the brother. But Vince Gilligan is such a man of integrity and a man of his word. He said, I'm going to find something for you that's going to be a part for you. I said, Vince, you don't have to. I was grateful to just read these wonderful words that you wrote, and we'll work together at some point in our lives. Very quickly, I think it was like the second season, he had a part for me, you know, uh, playing a lawyer, you know, uh, Jimmy McGill's boss. And uh, I, I just loved working with him and everybody creatively on the show. It's an extraordinary show, as was Breaking Bad. Mm. You know, Brian Cranston is a dear friend of mine, so I got hooked on that show and hoped that, that Vince would do another show and Peter would do another show afterwards. And Bob Odenkirk, the great Bob, and they did, and boy, did they do a good job. Now, what would you hope readers to understand about your life reading your book and anything you feel has been misunderstood about you? And your book has been described in part as, quote, Addiction, failure, and redemption. How so? You know, I think, I know I misunderstood my position and things. I thought it was really tough being Ed Begley's son. I literally thought that. I thought, I don't want to be compared to him. I'm not him. I'm different. Why do people, you know, call me Junior all the time? Well, first of all, that's my name. And second of all, it's a great bonus to be Ed Begley's son. There's nothing at all negative about it. But to get a job, you need to go in a job interview, and if they can remember your name, if you're Ed Begley Jr. or Liza Minnelli or Rob Reiner, it only helps you to be that they remember your name in the job interview. And number two, on that same job interview, they're now relaxed. And they go, I work with your dad in the Philco Playhouse. We also did a, that show Patterns together. Great great man, your, your, your dad. So top of page eight, Eddie. Good luck, pal. You know, they were like rooting for me, these different people because they knew my dad or knew of my dad if I hadn't worked with him. So it's a big, big plus being the son or daughter of anybody or probably even the niece or nephew, someone like my dad who's that talented. And I saw it as a plus finally, and that's when life got a lot better. And did his acclaimed performances in 12 Angry Men, Sweet Bird of Youth, and Inherit the Wind inspire you to become an actor, along with his running away as a kid to join the circus and carnivals? Yeah, he definitely inspired me to be an actor. I think if my dad were a plumber, I'd be fitting pipe now. <laughs> I just wanted to do what my dad did. He was an actor and from the earliest age. What do you want to be when you grow up? You know, I'd say, I want to be an actor. You know, what do you want to be? I want to be a comedian because my dad was also very funny. Mm. So I wanted to do what he did, and I'm convinced that was the major influence that led me in that direction. And when Ed Begley Jr. looks in the mirror, what does he see? A guy that finally figured out that you can't rush serenity. I tried to get, the title of the book is To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. I tried to find tranquility in a bottle of vodka. And uh, though that seems to work for a a few minutes or a few hours, it's not sustainable. And I don't do that anymore. I got wise to that one in 1979, finally. So you can't rush serenity, certainly not with pills or alcohol. And I stopped doing that, and life got a good deal better. And among your other highly unusual life experiences in your memoir, 
What can you say about being summoned to Marlon Brando's house to discuss the practical use of electric eels? Marlon was a dear friend of mine. I got summoned up there because I realized early on what he wanted to talk about, and more specifically what he didn't want to talk about. He did not want to talk about acting at all, or writing, or directing, or cinematography, or train seals, or claymation, anything to do with show business. He did want to talk about solar panels, wind turbines, you know, algae as a food source, uh, drywall, plumbing. He was just a very hands-on guy like I was. But one day he says to me, he says, Barry, he says, come on up here. There's a project I want to do with you, Ed. It's finally our time to work on a project together. I have the distribution. I have all the funding in place. So I thought he was talking about doing a movie together. I raced up there. The project was putting electric eels in a pool in everybody's home, not as a, like a moat to keep people away, but as a power source. So I thank God talked him out of that idea because that's not practical, of course. But he had a good many other ideas that I did support. One of them was deep ocean water cooling to, instead of traditional air conditioning to keep the food cold and the guests cool and the employees cool in the tropics. You spend a lot of money on a kilowatt hour because it's all diesel powered. This idea was to use deep ocean water to cool the guests and the food and the employees, and it works very well. They're using it in the tropics now, thanks to Dr. Craven and one Marlon Brando. Mm. And what are your thoughts about what went down during the actor's strike? And were you on the picket lines? I have been on the picket line, and I, I just really feel to my bones that we need to get some proper description, you know, of what AI means to us and to all creative people. And the writers have been satisfied with what they got, and I'm sure something similar to that will be fine by us. And also a, uh, a nice description and formula for streaming residuals, you know, reruns for that. And I'm sure we'll get that. What we want is fair, and, uh, and we get back to work because it affects not just actors and writers, but it affects grips and electricians and hair and makeup people mm. and the guy that runs the 7-Eleven and the person that runs the dry cleaner and the restaurants. It affects everybody. It's a big part of the economy. So, Okay, thank you so much, Ed Begley Jr., for joining us on the show. Thank you so much, Burry. And To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It is published by Hatchet Books. And now on Arts Express. You are the promised kiss of springtime That makes the lonely winter seem long You are the breathless hush of evening that trembles on the brink of a lovely song. And that was the great Ella Fitzgerald. Hi, this is Jack Shalom, and I'm happy to continue with part two of our conversation with the author of the new biography, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald, musicologist Judith Tick. Here's part two. One of the things that really surprised me in your book that as much as she was celebrated amongst her peers and internationally, she wasn't handed anything on a silver platter. That's a, a very good point. We have to discuss the kind of categories of singing that were expected of her. She was expected to sing black pop and jive singing and ballads, but show tunes and Broadway show tunes or Hollywood show tunes were considered above a lot of Black singers. And there's a reason that Broadway was called the Great White Way, because <laughs> it did not welcome Black artists into its theaters, and it did not welcome that sense of standards being accessible to anybody but legit singers. So the songbooks and standards and turning them into modern vocal terms that people could understand in the 50s was really a major contribution of Ella Fitzgerald that Norman Granz enabled. Tell us about her meeting with Norman Granz and his importance in her life. Norman Granz was 
a change agent for Ella Fitzgerald because he saw the full range of her gifts. He saw her mesmerize audiences in jazz at the Philharmonic. He saw her grow JATP, and he started a label for her called Verve. He had to wrest her away from Mogale, her agent, and then he had to wrest her away from Decca. He Uh told her that she could sing anything she wanted. He told her that he would give her anything she wanted, including a lavish studio orchestra. She could help realize this aspect of herself through a format that he called the songbook as a kind of cultural statement about the importance of the music she was singing and the importance of the voice that was transforming them into modern material. So those were double albums, all with one composer, uh, Cole Porter, George Gershwin, uh, Irving Berlin. Who else? Rogers and Hart. The first one was Cole Porter. That was a real surprise to white critics in particular who didn't think of Ella Fitzgerald as sophisticated enough to understand all the illusions and the the double entendres and the kind of wit that this urban sophisticated porter lavished on his lyrics. But what they didn't really get was how sentimental and romantic his harmonies and his melodies were and how they softened his cynicism. And Ella got that. She was able to, in addition, impart a sense of swing to them and modernize them. I get no kick from champagne Mere alcohol doesn't thrill me at all So tell me why should it be true That I get a kick out of you Some get a kick from cocaine. I'm sure that if I took even And Norman insisted on treating them as the standards as cultural artifacts. He did the verses many times, and he had many critics write excellent liner notes, and he lavished attention on the covers, and he promoted them. Then uh, he did a Rogers and Hart album, and then came a shocker, Duke Ellington, because Duke uh-huh. Ellington was not the same Broadway experience that the other right. songwriters had. And that was a contribution that both Ella Fitzgerald and Norman Granz made together. In a sentimental I can see the stars come through my room While your loving attitude Is like a flame that lights the gloom on the wings of Really, the success of the Cole Porter songbooks also reminds me to mention that they are the product of the LP revolution. You couldn't have such voluminous coverage of one composer in the same way when you had 78s as you could when you had LPs. Norman Grant sent her singing throughout Europe and the rest of the world. Was her reception by foreign audiences any different from that of American audiences? Well, it's interesting because they did not necessarily understand English. In contrast to the critics who reviewed how she pronounced this or that word, these audiences just accepted the whole package of singing in a different way. I think without the kind of baggage of either Jim Crow or Jane Crow that Black singers met in the United States. Well, even at the height of her fame, uh, Ella faced racial discrimination from some audiences. And you tell of one story of what happened in Tokyo with uh, an American Marine. Yes. That wasn't at the hand of Japanese audience. That was the doing of an American Marine who couldn't resist the opportunity to show his white superiority and shouted out obscenities at her on stage. She also 
And here, I think, is an interesting point. Norman Granz was a huge civil rights activist. He wanted to use jazz as a means to promote social justice, where people of all races would sit together. Well, that wasn't the law of the land. So here he is bringing these mixed troops players, led by Ella Fitzgerald, to all kinds of venues in the United States in particular, where audiences sitting together was a race statement. Yeah. And there's Ella on stage, and there's Ella going to these hotels, and there's Ella facing down some of these audiences. They were like the bus riders, the freedom riders of the early 1960s. In fact, Earl Hines, who did this on tours in the 30s and 40s, as Ella did with Chick Webb, too, talk about them that way. So there was a perpetual need to stay aware of a race climate if you were traveling with a mixed race troupe, if you were traveling in the South, and even on television, there were some programs that didn't want Ella to appear in front of a mixed race group. Years later, uh, Grands and Ella fell out with each other. What, what happened? I think fell out is a little strong. I think that Grands became judgmental about her family relationships. You know, he he saw the inside of them and he had he was skeptical about the way she handled her stature in the family and supported so many people. I also think he thought she should retire early because her voice was failing, but he loved her. And ultimately if she wanted to record something, he made it happen. TV viewers of a certain age wanna know. Did Ella really crack those drinking glasses with her high tones in the Memorex commercials? <laughs> they, you know what she, what she said? They had lawyers present, and yes, she did. Because, you know, she had such pure of pitch, and that's what it takes. Yes, she uh, did. What were the final years of Ella's life like? Well, first of all, we should mention that she suffered from chronic diabetes, which really was not explicitly diagnosed, at least publicly. But if you look at Ella, you see her start to wear glasses in the early 70s. So the diabetes was affecting her eyesight. And then it affected her heart. She had congestive heart failure. She had to have Mm. a massive arterial transplant in 1985. And then, sad to say, uh, in the early 1990s, the diabetes affected her her feet and her some toes got amputated, and ultimately, she had a double amputation, and the last couple of years of her life was really confined to a wheelchair. Most people don't know that. You know, it's even hard to talk about it. Yeah. But the other side is she kept on working right through 1990. Sometimes there's a photo of Ella sitting in a wheelchair with her foot bandage, and she's working. So the courage that she showed and the tenacity she showed of keeping on is a counterweight to the sadness of some of her physical decline or mental decline even that comes with aging. She was how old when she died? She was 79. As we wrap up, Judith, what's the most important thing you know about Ella Fitzgerald? (laughs) That she had purpose that she respected her gift. And the most important thing for her was to use it in a way that promoted music as social harmony and created a world in which it functioned as a bomb for the sins of humanity. Ah, great. I've been speaking with Judith Tick, author of Becoming Ella Fitzgerald. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Romance, Finney, your chance, Finney. Those ants that invaded my pants, Finney. Bewitched, bothered, and bewildered. No. And we'll go out now with The Success of Failure, 
Movies so bad, they're good. And this movie as one of the topics on the table. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. You will see the ease with which this vicious plant can be grown in your neighbor's yard, rolled into harmless-looking cigarettes, hidden in an innocent shoe or watch case. In this startling film, you will see dopesters lure children to destruction. We're going over to Joe's place. Why don't you come along? We have a date to play a set of doubles. Oh, you can play anytime. Come on, we'll have some laughs. Can I go along with you? Sure. Hey, I'll see you at dinner, sis. If you want a good smoke, try one of these. You will meet Bill, who once took pride in his strong will as he takes the first step toward enslavement. Of course, if you're afraid. Smoking the soul-destroying reefer, they find a moment's pleasure, but at a terrible price. Debauchery, violence, murder, suicide. the ultimate end of the marijuana addict. Hopeless insanity. See this important film now, before it is too late. This is the UK Desk for Arts Express and my name is Brett Gregory. This evening, my special guest and I will be exploring the success of failure. Movies so bad, they're good. My name is James McDowell and I'm Associate Professor of Film Studies at the University of Warwick. I've published on topics like the happy ending in Hollywood cinema, the nature of irony in the medium of film, and uh, most relevant to this conversation, the aesthetic philosophy of bad cinema. So, James, what first drew you into this strange yet sublime cinematic underworld? I think at first it was just a love for certain movies that are regularly beloved by fans for their failings, which leads to this label, So Bad It's Good. The first ones I saw were probably Plan 9 from Outer Space and Glen or Glenda by Ed Wood, which I sought out because of the Tim Burton biopic of Ed Wood. And later on, I developed a fascination with others, like The Room, Troll 2, Neil Breen's films, Birdemic, and even stranger examples like the truly bizarre After Last Season, which I really encourage listeners to seek out if they're not familiar with it. What specifically makes a bad movie good? What is so special about his failings? They're usually taken to be failing in particularly strange, amusing, or confounding ways. Often they have a sort of characteristic bizarreness, an inexplicability, a sense of how did this get made? Why didn't someone notice or care about this mad bit of editing that totally disorients us? Or, you know, that strange bit of acting that like doesn't relate to anything recognizable from any regular movie performances or even from the norms of like comprehensible social interaction and so on and so on. Those kinds of technical failures of craftsmanship are clearly key to most sorts of so-bad-it's-good movies. I'm reminded here of an awkward school nativity play featuring terrible child actors and wonky scenery. While the children's parents are there beaming with pride, the rest of the audience are checking the time. However, through sheer naive optimism, the show goes on. There is this other more indefinable thing you mentioned, which is this idea of a kind of naive optimism, which I do think is a really important part of the process. Susan Sontag called this a kind of failed seriousness when she was trying to define camp. This sense that we have 
that an artwork represents a particularly passionate failure. This is something that its makers truly felt and believed in, which makes their sort of failure to achieve it have a kind of pathos about it. Like the room where we can't help but feel that Tommy Wiseau must have been channeling some genuine feelings, probably from a real breakup, for example, or Plan 9 from Outer Space, which clearly has quite sincere anti-nuclear weapons politics at its centre, actually. It's often that indefinable strangeness that seems to stem from an intense, singular, almost maniacally determined vision that I think lies at the heart of the most, at least the most fascinating examples of So Bad It's Good. Although this type of fandom brings attention to a film or even ticket sales, it sometimes feels to me like the filmmaker is being mocked or even bullied. What's your opinion on this? It could seem like, you know, legions of fans laughing at a melodrama like The Room or kids getting stoned in front of an anti-drugs propaganda film like the hysterical Reefer Madness. This could seem like it confirms that the meaning of a movie isn't determined by its author's intentions. But in fact, what responding to The Room or Reefer Madness like this actually presupposes is that these audiences feel they can actually tell what these movies' original intentions were. We have to first assume that something like The Room wasn't intended to be a self-parodic comedy in order to laugh at it in the way that we do. And there's also something traditional about the kind of evaluation that's going on in this sort of appreciation. Loving a film's failures might seem to support the philosophical position that in the philosophy of art is called subjectivism which is the notion that there are no logical standards governing evaluation and that what we call artistic value is simply another name for the degree of pleasure that artworks afford us personally. Interesting. If calling something so bad it's good involves appreciating an artwork for failing to achieve its artistic intentions, then this fundamentally assumes that artistic success would, at a minimum, involve achieving them. So really, if we're being pedantic, we could say that the phenomenon doesn't seem to claim that these films are so bad they're good, but rather so bad that they're pleasurable. You could say then that this presupposition limits the audience's understanding of the creative act to such a degree they become prejudiced. What I mean is they believe they already know what good cinema is, or what good music is, or what good art is, even before it's produced. Yeah, there's doubtless an element of truth to the idea that enjoying films like these for their, effectively their, their failure to conform to accepted standards has something seemingly a bit conservative about it and maybe sort of condescending. The very act of enjoying something for its failings does necessarily involve a sort of an assumption around one's own superiority. Like we can see failings that these artists apparently couldn't see. But you believe there is more emotional depth involved here? Speaking personally, I can say that I honestly deeply love a movie like The Room. And the nature of that love is certainly different, but it's not less real than the kind of love that I feel for other favourite movies of mine that I love because I view them as artistic successes. This is an important point, I think, about cult pleasure in general. In order to feel superior about something, we have to feel we understand it. And I don't feel like that with something like The Room. You know, I appreciate The Room not just because it's bad, but because it is bad in very special and very strange ways, ways that seem unique to it alone, and which, even after many, many viewings, I still feel that I can't quite master. One thing to say about that is simply that, clearly, if they had been made with the sort of oversight that mainstream Hollywood production brings, then the idiosyncratic vision and techniques of someone like Tommy Wiseau or Ed Wood or Neil Breen would certainly have been tamped down. They would have had the interesting edges sanded off, or more likely they'd have never been allowed in the director's chair at all. So in that sense, appreciating those very rough edges themselves is clearly something that means this sort of fandom does champion the marginal, the the anti-mainstream status of these films, because they simply wouldn't look and sound and feel like they do and in the ways that their fans 
particularly appreciate if they hadn't been made outside of these structures and centres of commercial mainstream media production. I think the critical establishment also avoids serious consideration of movies such as these simply due to the comedy factor. That is to say, meditations upon artistic pursuits and the human condition are supposed to be lofty and solemn. To come back to The Room one more time, The Room does, in a weird way, make me feel a kind of sympathy, not for the character that Wizzo plays, Johnny, but for Wizzo himself, Wizzo, the flailing artist, trying desperately to express himself, believing himself to be hitting it out of the park and making his masterpiece. I think on a certain level, surely many fans of the film can surely relate in some fashion to that quixotic predicament. Art like this is one area of contemporary culture where I think it feels appropriate to use concepts that today sort of general pervasive postmodern scepticism can often make us feel wary of applying. Like ideas like authenticity, unbridled self-expression, maybe even in some perverse sense artistic truth. The aesthetic experience that the artwork provides is actually something close to all of those things, all those traditional things that we've long hoped for from the artistic encounter. It's affecting, it's mesmerizing, it's cathartic. In short, that experience, at least, is actually really, really good. What a wonderful sentiment to end on, James. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, involving and illuminating. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express, and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show.